Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s inspired style and cutting edge performance technology with its sleek mid cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi piece upper construction delivers high energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Tennis Channel Inside In on the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. Mitch Michaels from the Santa Monica Studios as we reach the final stages, the business end of the U.S. Open, the 2022 edition in Flushing Meadows, and calling us now, joining us on the show on site, second time on the show, tennis journalist for uh, many years, a podcaster, blogger. You can follow him as the Fanchild on Twitter. It's Chris Otto on the show now. Chris, thanks for joining, and uh helping to recap what's been a wild and truly remarkable U.S. Open. It's been fun, right? Hey, Mitch, glad we could connect. How's it going? It's going great. Uh, a lot to recap in the last couple of days, too. The The beauty of this is there's so much to react to, although I, a lot of times we have to timestamp some stuff. Uh, we've had a few days to uh, kind of recap some of the stuff and some of the quarterfinal matchups on the men's side. The semis just completed on the women's side. And, uh, yeah. Chris, I want to go back to one of the just greater matches I can ever remember seeing uh, at the U.S. Open, at uh, any major, let, let alone the fact that these are two of the young guys that have been anointed as perhaps guys that could carry the torch for the next generation. But the Onyx Center-Carlos Alcaraz match that took place on Wednesday night was just unbelievable. Uh, important for a lot of reasons. I mentioned generationally, but if you just look at it in terms of a level of tennis, this match was off the charts, and uh, I'll, I guess I'll just ask you this first question. The contrast in this rivalry, to me, is what makes it special. Do you get a sense that this is something that we should just settle in and expect to see this kind of level of greatness for a long time? Yeah. I mean, everybody was excited that those two were going to square off in the quarters after we saw it, what we saw at Wimbledon between Alcaraz and Sinner, and the respect that they have between them. The fact that they're both rising forces, significant talent that we think, as you said, is likely going to carry the torch for men's tennis going forward. And but and you're right. I mean, people are reacting to this match in, in, in a way that is not hyperbolic at all. It was ridiculous. I went out to Arthur Ashe Stadium in the third set, and that was uh, time for Yannick Sinner to really put on a show. And I really changed the way that I look and understand how lethal his game is and can be. It was just mind-blowing. Mm. I mean, I could just go on. I was getting shivers, and I was sitting there with a colleague going, I don't is this the best tennis I've ever seen? And it's like, I, and, I'm, and basically, what what is this level? What yeah. What is happening? This is ridiculous. Yeah, uh, the shot making in this one. I know that there's there's going to be matches that it's hard to sustain a level that brilliant. It was it was a moment where I think all tennis fans and even new tennis fans were were introduced. We were all the the diehard fans were like proud parents, like you know, getting to yeah. show off our shiny new kids, our shiny new toys. Uh, the Alcaraz behind the back shot, which was one of the most insane things I've ever seen, and then Chris the Yannick Sinner's got a trademark that run around forehand. Because oh, it, he did it in the Avashka match, and it was like, wow, this is incredible. But when he did it again against Alcaraz, you're like, there, there's something special. I just go back to, I mentioned the contrast. Alcaraz, an unreal athlete, one of the best court movers I've seen in a very long time already. 
center has the ability to just hit shots and hit winners, even against a guy like Alcaraz who can retrieve against center like we haven't seen anybody do. That yeah. That's part of what is, you know, the fact that the big three and these guys, Roger, Ruff, and Novak, have had these rivals, and obviously it's the fact that they've been so good they've been contending for titles, but stylistically is a big part of it. I think at least when these two play tennis, you just you see the chess moves, you see how good they are and how they bring the best out of each other. I know center loss, but I, I hate the cliches of no losers out there. That really did feel like a great match and one that I think everyone's going to be proud that they were a part of. Yeah, I'm glad we're speaking on this subject a bit because, you know, it really was a remarkable matchup and it gives us so much to look forward to today with Alcaraz performing again. And and let's face it, I think Carlos needed to win that match. He had lost to Yannick at Wimbledon, lost him in the Imag final after being a set-up, getting breadsticked in, in the second and third sets. There was a little bit of Yannick potentially being in his head if he had been able to win this match. But, yeah, the matchup, what, what impressed me the most, I think, was the pace of play, the it felt like a tennis at a higher speed, kind of in another dimension, how quickly they were striking and how well they were recovering to continue these rallies at this like basic breakneck speed. There was such pace between them. The rallies were just so intense and, and they would go, some of them would go, you know, eight to 10 strokes only because that was really as far as they could take it with how, how aggressive and how attacking the tennis was. It was just, and obviously they're very comfortable facing one another. They, they match up in a way that just creates just a really um, eye-catching tennis. So, I mean, we've got a lot to look forward to these two. I mean, 5-15, second longest match in the U.S. Open history, latest yeah. nation. A nighttime finish ever. There was just so much to like about it, and of course, Sinner does not need to hang his head yeah. at all. I mean, if anything, he was the revelation for me personally watching him. I just think the way he's so rangy and the way he can do the things you wouldn't expect an explosive attacking player to do, he can also defend. And his return of some of Alcaraz's serves yeah. was, was just spot on. I mean, you know, it, it came and went a little bit. That there were a little bit of lulls in the play here and there, but. Uh, the level so high over that period of time. It's just, oof, you guys are, you guys are good, and they're gonna, and they're gonna get better. Nineteen and twenty-one. That's the important their ages. So it, it was just remarkable. Uh, just last thing on this match. Do you have any issues with, or any maybe critiques? Issues might be too strong with the scheduling. If these matches going too late is a bad thing. If there are any alternatives, what are your thoughts on the topic of these matches might not be good for the players that they go so late? No, I don't have a big issue with it. Of course, yeah, look at it. These guys finished at three. It might put them at a slight disadvantage today in the semis. Carlos is playing at night. He had nearly 48 hours to recover. Yeah, it's tough for everybody in the first 10 days of the tournament. The second match of the Arthur S. night session could create problems mm. for guys recovering. Um, it's a show, however, and, yeah. and uh, there's, there's no other tennis show like it in the world, and I think – People, of course, will look for something to react to negatively after a match like that, after 3 a.m., but what's the bright side? If you're in Europe, you're catching it before your lunch. <laughs> yeah, Great spectacle for Europeans. Um, yeah. I don't know. I don't know what they can do. I, I mean, yeah, maybe they can start their night session at 6 p.m. Maybe that's something that can be done, but I don't have a huge issue with it. With it. I don't think Carlos or Yannick did either, and that's maybe the ones that we need to look at if, if we really want to find some issue and see how see how the players feel about it right. there are too many complaints right well we will uh we'll get to the preview of uh, the, the semis today in a little bit but i do think you know being 19 your recovery is going to be a little faster so i think he'll be fine with that day off mm -hmm. and yeah. another important point to note that was as they mentioned on the broadcast probably the most fans i've seen that late like no it wasn't like an empty arena the fans were in it for the long haul so props to the new york crowd um it Absolutely, was yeah. it was remarkable well 
Alcaraz will be playing uh, the first American to reach the U.S. Open semis in 16 years since Andy Roddick did it. Francis Tiafo gets there. Wasn't the trendy pick of the Americans to kind of break through and, and break that streak, but he has played lights out. And we talk about a lot with his game and his demeanor and how he captivates the crowd, and he is a showman, and he, and he does all these great things. But, Chris, what stood out to me as someone that's followed and rooted for this guy for a long time He's playing, and I've and I've seen it firsthand. He's playing cleaner and smarter matches. That Rublev, you know, beating the doll is one thing; it's a tremendous accomplishment. But to back that up and to beat Rublev in straight sets in a match where he was playing efficient tennis, there's always been the knock on him that you know he's kind of gone for too big and has had dips in his game. That was erased yeah. in the Rublev match. So I was thoroughly impressed with how he played a clean, smart match. Yeah, that has been the knock. You're correct, Mitch. Is, is, um, you know, I've heard so many people wonder and ask, well, why can't Francis play a complete match or play a complete tournament? Why are the dips and why is where's where's the lack of focus coming from? And you know, he's he's admitted it himself as coach Wayne Ferreira, of course, has been like the number one thing they've harped on. And here we are, 2022 U.S. Open. He's he's clearly uh, turned a corner and really been mature and really been focused and really not had those dips and that's why he was able to get by a very tough in New York Andre Rublev in straight seven and he had to do it with some, some good stuff in the tiebreakers in set one and two. I, I love the fact that you know you beat Rafael Nadal and you don't have the natural letdown that happens when you beat a great player and you have that accomplished win he backed it up and you know he is I mean it's easy to get behind an American but especially him how he plays how he brings the crowd into it and you get a sense, I've gotten a sense that he's kind of built for a moment, a stage like this. And you don't want to, you can't really pick a lot of times when the breakthrough comes, but this is super fitting and, and super, you know, classic that it happened here. Like that's the, that's the coolest part to me about all this, that his breakthrough happened at the U.S. Open. Yeah. And the breakthrough has already come and it could get better. Of course. I mean, he's in there with a real good shot facing Alcaraz. I mean, this is the semifinals in the men's side, but all first-time U.S. Open semifinalists, first yeah. time since the tournament started in 1881. So it's wide open. I asked him about that in press, and first thing he said is, well, it's really nice, and Nadal's not in there anymore. I mean, all these four guys, they don't have to worry about a Novak Djokovic or a Rafael Nadal after they've gone through the five matches and the rigors that it takes to do that. They've got a, a bunch of newbies to face, so it's, <laughs> yeah. it really does feel wide open. There's a lot of excitement in Francis. God, the charisma, the origin story, the personality, the smile. The game, which is really complete, he's good at the net. He's 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 really worked on his serve. He's fit. He's fiery. I mean, just, I hope more people get to know him and get to appreciate him this weekend. Just, um, he certainly is a player that's you know, still 24 years old, but just still on the rise. Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s-inspired style and cutting-edge performance technology with its sleek mid-cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi-piece upper construction delivers high-energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. Fourth Chris Otto here on Tennis Channel Inside In. Well, that other semifinal that'll get going here shortly is uh, Karen Hatchinoff taking on Casper Ruud. Uh, two different guys that weren't necessarily expected to be here when the year started or in the tournament started in a lot of ways. But for uh, Hatchinoff first, seated in the low twenties coming in, had a had a rough go this year. This is the improbable run. I mean, this it's it's funny. We always talk about age with the men's and women's players. How if they've been around long enough. We can't believe how young that they still are. 
it was many years ago now where he won Paris and he beat Djokovic to do it. He was the top ranked Russian. And then the dip started and we thought maybe he was getting passed by. Did he hit his ceiling? But for him to rebound, for him to do it. And, and honestly, to beat Nick Kyrgios with, with the crowd support that Kyrgios had, this was a very thoroughly impressive performance by, by a young man that's definitely built and has that DNA to, you know, stay in the fight and stay in the moment. So hats off completely to what Hatchinoff has done. Yeah, he's, he really impressed me with his fighting spirit and his stick-to-itiveness against Kyrgios in the night session. Um, I took advantage of the fact that I think Kyrgios was a little bit uneven in that match. Uh, I mm-hmm. didn't expect it. I didn't expect it. I think, you know, you mentioned we didn't expect Kyrgios uh, catching off before the tournament. We didn't even expect him before the, the quarterfinals, to be honest, to be here. Right. He's done a lot to uh, change our opinion of where he's at in his career. And he's got a lethal game. He's serving great. I think maybe the best he's served yeah. in the last few rounds. And that's helping him. And, and he's just been so steady, so professional. And he's, he, he can if he make these matches physical even better for him. Yeah. So he can grind people down. The way that Kyrgios had been serving, and even in that match, you know, it was it was impressive that Hatchinoff realized, okay, I have to hold my serve. Like, whatever happens, this has to be rock solid because Kyrgios gets a break. It's been curtains for a lot of players. Um, I don't want to look back at the U.S. Open as a, as a disappointment in the complete sense for Kyrgios, given that he did a lot of great things before that last match, but this was, and it's always going to be a fair concern until he wins seven straight matches and wins a major. It's, it's unfortunate that we're still kind of discussing this, but it's not so much Chris, in my opinion, who he has to beat. It's the mental test of going seven in a row. It's why only one person does it every tournament, but it seemed like that kind of had got to him a little bit. I know the leg wasn't feeling good, but he was, as you said, uneven and, it's a shame because he knew that this was an opportunity that was gone by the wayside. Yeah, it is a little bit of a shame. And um, I guess the, the positive and the very, very positive thing is that in the last three months, Nick Kyrgios has completely changed the narrative about his potential in his career, Wimbledon final. Here he was a big player beating Daniil Medvedev. That was an incredible match, incredible performance. And I was thinking this guy has really got what it takes to, to beat anybody right now. You know, And heading into the Hasanoff matchup, I was so surprised that he couldn't get through get through him and yeah and the reason was i i don't think he played well enough steady enough throughout that match it was just too uneven first yeah. set was kind of a throwaway there were games that he threw away there were there were break points that he double faulted on where he went for massive big serves he just didn't have that patience he didn't have that professionalism that he had shown previously so you know he just ran out of steam a little bit but but like i said i think he did change the narrative and i think if he stays positive he knows a lot about being deeper in majors from the last two slams, and he could continue to be a factor consistently if he wants to be. He's one hell of a fun watch, isn't he? He, he certainly is. And I, in a weird way, I actually liked the fact that he was so disappointed and upset after because I think yeah. the old Kyrgios would have been just already out of the locker room. So I think that part's pretty good. The guy that Achenoff's playing in the, in the semi, Casper Root, has a chance to be number one in the world, which is which is insane to think about given where he's been in the last couple of years. But Casper Rude's two biggest things to me, I mean, one is the fitness level in terms of how he's built for best of five is remarkable. I, I, I think that's stood out. The Tommy Paul match earlier where they had a war and in the fifth set, Rude was you know still on top of his game and, and won with a bagel there. But he is, to me, Chris, he has gotten so much better in terms of his all-court game and his all-surface game. I think it was fair to yeah. say a couple of years ago that he was kind of built for the clay. Watching him in that Berrettini match kind of break down what Berrettini was trying to do, 
I mean, he's a different player. The last year and a half, he's a completely different guy and a much better tennis player. Absolutely. And you hit on the, the most important things about Casper's story right now, which is one, he's evolved on the hard courts. I think he was 16 and 27 before 2021. 20, mm. I think that I forget. It's like a 35% winning percentage on mm. hard. Since then, he's got a 74% winning percentage. So completely turned around his fortunes on the surface. I think uh, shoring up his backhand, making the serve pop a little more and just getting comfortable. I, talking to him in press over the last two matches or so, he said, I always knew how to play on hard courts in Norway. We do it for about six months a year, but he chose to really work his clay game to get his ranking up so he could start making main draws and back before, you know, he wasn't a top 10 player and that's where his priority was. But now it's shifted back. The other point you made, Mitch, perfect. It's about being comfortable in the best of five scenario. And he told me that something clicked for him in Paris where he started to really feel more comfortable playing these longer matches to know how to manage his energy, these simple things that we don't really think about. We think about yeah. forehand, backhand, tactics, techniques. But he's gotten really comfortable with the best of five. I mean, and then the last thing is the way that he played against Berrettini. That was just like next level tennis from him on a hard court, on a big stage. It was very impressive yeah. the way he just completely derailed Matteo Berrettini. It was, and and I just the last thing on Casper Ruud, I just want to say, I mean, because he's gone public. I know the criticism at times or the margins and, and and that, and I think there's something to be said about the way he plays, especially in best of five with his confidence, with his fitness level, that he doesn't have to go for broke every single time, and he's comfortable just staying in the fight, playing smart tennis. If you hit a winner against him, it's not the end of the world, and that that strategy works. I mean, I think I think he's figured out a way to play consistent major best of five tennis. Yeah, and it's taken him to the cusp of reaching number one, like you said, and yeah. like he's a heavy favorite to make the U.S. Open final. This guy who's mm. not supposed to be anything on a hard court, but he clearly is. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Well, let's talk about the women's semifinals match, semifinal matches that took place last night. Uh, a couple different things to get to, and uh, I want to start with the reigning number one, uh, Iga Sviantek, who battles back, battles past Arena Sablanka, 6-4 in the third set. Remarkable stuff. She finishes winning, I think, 16 of the last 20 points, down 4-2, last four games. Chris, this is, yeah. it was a great match, and I know Sabalenka isn't going to want to hear it, but she played at a high level for most of this match. But in terms of Iga, a lot can be said of, and we, we've talked about it before when you were on this show, but her compete level and her ability to not just stay in the fight, but do it, kind of develop new tactics mid-match, go to plan B, plan C even. That's what I think yeah. sets her apart from a lot of the females on tour and what won her this match yesterday. Yeah, I think she stressed that from early in the year. She wanted to learn how to make comebacks, come back from a set down. And she's done that more this year, of course. She's done everything more this year than she ever has in her career. But, um, yeah, I mean, that's the, that's the story, right? She's really overcome obstacles from the start of the tournament, really from the start of the North American hardcore swing, where she, uh, she, she expressed her disdain with the balls because they're regular duty. Your listeners probably won't know what the hell we're talking about, but that just means yeah. they fly a little bit more. They play a little faster. And it's not her style. Um, she doesn't like them, but she's learning 
to play her best tennis, which isn't as, as good as it probably is at Roland Garros on the slow playing clay, but she's found ways to win. That's what this her whole run to the final is about. It's just about her competing, about being an intelligent competitor, about finding ways to win, about you know overcoming her own issues with the, with the surface, with New York, with faster playing balls, and beating every opponent she's faced. It's been a real solid, steady performance. Exactly what you want to see from a world number one. 21 years old, on the cusp for her oh, third wow. major, um, just already building that Hall of Fame resume and, and not even scratching the surface, which is the scary thing. Uh, mentioned Sabalenka. I know there's been some critiques of maybe mentally not being in it the whole match and uh, having some some letdowns. I still think her ceiling is very, very dangerous. When she's on, she is the most dangerous player maybe on tour. Uh, Chris, that's three major semifinals and three 6-4 losses in the third set. I can tell why she was, I mean, it's obvious to know why she was so, you know, upset in the press conference. And, you know, she's close. She's right there. But it's been the same level, same result each time where I think that when you get to this level, sometimes, I mean, it might be Hoover to kind of just back off a little bit in terms of going for everything because she's not far off, but it's still that last step that's been the hardest for her. Yeah, I think it's a, a, it'll segue us into the other semifinal where, you know, it's mental out there in, in those clutch yeah. spots, and she's, she's going to have to overcome the fact that she has lost three straight Grand Slam semis. She's going to have to fight her way back to that same stage again and overcome it. She's young, and clearly she can do it. She played great this tournament. Serving so much better, she shored up the, the huge gaping issue in the game, which was the, the lack of confidence in her second serve and all the double faulting issues, which completely sabotaged the game. This was a great performance. Yeah. Nothing to feel bad about except for those last four games where she surely like to try to do those over again. She has two chances mm-hmm. to serve. I mean, you know, she's but eager. You got to hand it to Iga. She took it from yeah. her, and it's gonna have to. Have, it's gonna have to be back to the drawing board for Sabalenka. I have all the confidence that she'll she get back and have other opportunities. You mentioned the other semifinal. Do you think there's anybody more frustrating to play against than Anjibor? If you're on the other side of that net, for her ability to just keep you on your heels, gave you different looks, and I mean, what she did in that match to Caroline Garcia, what she did to the hottest player on tour in terms of the win results, in terms of what had been happening the last couple months. And Anj Jabor just dominated that match from start to finish. You know, Mitch kind of knew it was going to be tricky from the start with uh, Garcia having the 0-2 head-to-head at tour level, but also 0-4 in juniors. Yeah. She talked in press about how Owens had stopped her from winning you know, junior grand slams. And, uh, Garcia was really my one of my revelations of the tournament. She played so brilliantly through five rounds, dropping just 27 games. Her first strike of tennis, just free-flowing and just absolutely front-running. But then she ran into just a clever player who really took her out of that, you know, that one-two first strike kind of mentality because there's just too much. Too, yeah, you're right. Owens gives you too much to think about. Mm-hmm. I think mentally Garcia failed in this match. I think that was probably issue number one. And then number two, she just couldn't get into the patterns that I've worked for in those first five matches. She couldn't dictate. And she's not the kind of player that wants to play on the back foot and she was forced to. And, and Brilliant performance by Owens. God, she's really come of age, hasn't she? Most consistent play. I mean, I mean, Iga's the the other one. If Iga didn't exist, right, we'd be talking about Owens the last two years. The match wins, just how she's come of age on all surfaces, similar to Casper Ruud in that regard. Her mental strength yeah. is so solid, and her serve's gotten better too. I mean, that's a legit weapon when she uses it too. So I'm I'm impressed. We're getting you know, and we can kind of segue into the in the finals here too, but you know, into the, into the semis for the men and the finals for the women, but we're getting number one versus eventually number two in the rankings, you know, get updated. 
the U.S. Open yeah. and the women's game for all the parody and for all the, you know, different contenders and different storylines, which I'm very appreciative of. We're getting the two best players in the world playing for the title. Yeah, we got ourselves a dream final. It should be it should be real good because you get the feeling it owns. It really took a lot out of reaching that Wimbledon final. She's a woman who puts it out there. She expects to, to be back, and, and here she is back with another chance in the final. Of course, he's a absolute juggernaut in her in finals recently and of late. But you know, better to face her in the U.S. Open on a, on a court that she's not really as comfortable and hasn't dominated as much on. Um, I give owns a much bigger chance than I would certainly at, at, on at Roland Garros. Yeah, two and two head to head. The last time they played yeah. on hard court, it was Owen Shabor winning in straight sets, 2021 Cincinnati. So, yeah, it's not on mm-hmm. clay, so that gives Owen a better chance as well. Uh, I think this is going to be a competitive final, and I, I, I'm, I'm not going to necessarily pick against Iga just until someone kind of dethrones her in this tournament. But I, I like the fact that Owens has different strategies too, and I think mentally this is going to be almost like a chess match in a lot of ways. Because I feel a yeah. lot of momentum swings coming in this one. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, Iga has a, had a lot of trouble holding serve in the last mm-hmm. um, two rounds in particular. I think she's been broken maybe nine or ten times in those two matches. So she really would, will need to shore that up for the final. And if she doesn't, yeah, she'll be. Uh, she might be forced to be. Uh, she might be with her back against the wall against Owens, and that could make things even trickier. But this is to me is a fifty-fifty shot. I think. Yeah. To me, it, 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 to me, it's going to be, yeah, as you said, really interesting to watch how it plays out tactically, the X's and O's, and how each one that tries to disrupt the other. Of course, Owens will be the disruptor. People try to kind of play through it with their, with their, with their heavy game. It should be really cool. Yeah, we're either going to get a, uh, you know, a number one that wins her first U.S. Open, three major titles, or we're going to get a pioneer in, in Owens Jabor yeah. for what she means and, you know, being the first person from her region of the world to win a major title would be just insane as well, so... Excited to see how that yeah. goes. Uh, Chris Otto here on Tennis Channel Inside In. The men's semifinals, which we're about to take flight in a second here with uh, Atchinoff and Rude getting us underway. Imagine Rude being a heavy favorite. I think Atchinoff's serve. Like, I, I understand, and Rude is, is the trendy pick for deserved reasons and what he's done. Atchinoff's serve and forehand have to be rock solid, and I think that's the, the challenge of playing Casper Rude light is that if you give him an opening, any opening at all, he can just wear you down and exploit it. I would say that's correct. Uh, I think Hatchinoff is probably the guy with the least to lose. He's considered an underdog. If he comes out and plays the way he's been playing, I, I feel like this could be a four or five set slugfest. I don't think, you know, Cas- I'd give Casper the edge. I'd give him the nod right now, but I think that, you know, he's not proven on this stage mm-hmm. yet and that uh, there's going to be some nerves. It should be, uh, I think it should be very compelling tennis. Not the one that uh, I think the most fans are looking forward to here in New York, but I think yeah. it could be a sleeper and, and a real good match. Yeah, I think it's fair to say that the, the, I mean, the fans are just dying for the Alcaraz Tiafo match, which is going to be great. I know Tiafo has the crowd support being the American, how fun he is. Alcaraz has a lot of support from the fans because they've been getting to know him past two in the morning the last couple matches he's played. Uh, yeah. that, that said, I mean, Francis is playing great. This is a very tough challenge for him. I think the biggest reason being, I mean, Alcaraz's defense, just continuing to extend rallies and to continue to, you know, we say he doesn't really look like he gets tired out there. That's the part that I think Francis is going to have to look to finish these rallies as as quick as he can, which is going to be balancing the test of how can you do that without going for broke and going for too big too much. It's a tough task. Francis is up for it, I think, given how he's played, but 
Beating Alcaraz in a best of five is is quickly becoming added to my list of tough sports tasks at the moment. Yeah, Alcaraz really does seem to have that magic in the five setter. He seems to be able to um, wiggle out of trouble when when he's up against it. Um, there's some some kind of a quality. We even saw it in Roland Garros with the I think that was the five setter against Ramos Vignola. So yeah, mm-hmm. you're right. Francis is going to have to find ways. He's going to have to do both things. He's going to have to say, as you said, balance it. He's going to have to be able to try and attack, but he's also going to show some shot tolerance and some consistency to be able to work the court and find some openings against his speed demon. It's not going to be easy, but he's going to have to kind of I think maybe play a close to perfect match to get it done. Yeah, I, I think uh, I, I think that's going to be the task. The task for him is to balance those two things, play close to a perfect match, stay in it, no dips for sure. Alcaraz in best of five in fifth in fifth sets even is just is something. So we'll see a lot of storylines here, Chris. I mean, you're going to have a first time major champion uh, in this case. We're going to have either the American drought over the Spanish kid that everyone's anointed get his first major or two of the improbable Cinderella's, and maybe even Casper Root at number one. So there's a lot to like with how this tournament's going to shake out. It's been a really fun one, which we started talking about on the show. For all the drama and, and, and issues and early round exits, we still have just some phenomenal tennis to bring us home here. Yeah, I mean, my last point on Francis, I will say, is that it's pretty cool that the first week was all about Serena and celebrating her legacy and her greatness, and then here comes Francis, the first black man to reach the U.S. Open semifinal and since Arthur Ashe in 1972, and he'll get to go out of today in Arthur Ashe Stadium. It's kind of a beautiful, like, I don't know, full, full circle moment. Like, the torch got passed. Like, Serena's gone in week one, but but it, but it lives on. That's yeah. that to me is pretty special. Yeah, Coco Golf with her performance getting into the top 10 uh, for the first yeah, time as yeah. well. So, yeah, I mean, Serena's going to obviously, it's, it's impossible to fill the shoes and, and the pioneer that she was, but her impact already being felt. And I think it's yeah. really cool. And uh, obviously, we're showing some American bias. We like to see when, you know, the American men can kind of regroup and break through here. So it's been great. We'll see how this shakes out. Uh, Chris, thanks for coming back on the show. Chris Otto, you can follow his stuff at the Fan Child on Twitter. And uh, only a couple weeks till hockey season as well. So got to get up on yeah. that as well. I haven't thought about it one bit. I've been so busy riding the seven train and staying at Western uh, Meadows for 14 hours a day. But yes, good point. And Mitch, thanks for having me. It's always a big pleasure. For sure. That was Chris Otto here on Tennis Channel Inside In. We're on the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. Go to tennis.com slash podcast for the entire catalog of this and all of these shows on our network. We're on all your podcast platforms as well. The show will be back next week to recap the U.S. Open and uh, preview what's in store with the Labor Cup and other events in the fall. You're not going to want to miss that. For Chris Otto, my name is Mitch Michaels. This was Tennis Channel Inside In. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next week.